Our teaching for this morning is going to be based on Genesis chapter 15, which we'll read now. This is God's Word. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my help of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As Matt just read, we're continuing our study in Genesis. And if you've been, if you've been around the last few weeks, we are um, actually in the midst of a, a series where we're uh, going back and forth between the book of Genesis and the book of Romans. And uh, we are uh, looking at now the story of Abraham. And uh, if, if you're new to Christianity or the Bible, somewhat unfamiliar, it's just important to know that this book of Genesis is the first of the five books that Moses wrote to God's people on their way to the promised land. And I think it's, it's fairly easy to fall into a habit of thinking that if we're in the Old Testament... We're a long ways away from what Christians call the gospel or the good news. And if that's sort of um, the default mode of your uh, perspective when we come to this passage, uh, we're in need of some correction. Because the Apostle Paul himself in the book of Galatians says that God preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying 
in you shall all the nations be blessed. And he's directly quoting from Genesis chapter 12. Now what that means is if we're to understand what the Bible means by good news or the gospel, we have to realize that Abraham's story is a good news story. That the good news is not just a New Testament thing, it's a biblical thing. It's a whole Bible thing. And today when we come to Genesis chapter 15, this chapter stands out as an especially important chapter in Scripture for for a couple reasons. One, in verse 6, if you look there in your worship folder, describing Abraham, it says that he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now that verse gets picked up by the New Testament writers, especially the Apostle Paul. And if you, you were listening or paying attention, you might have noticed we read from Romans 4 just a few moments ago where this exact verse gets quoted. And not just quoted of Abraham, but picked up and said it was written not just for him, but also for us. So this, this chapter is significant and very important for what it means to understand what it means to be a person of faith. Paul actually calls Abraham the man of faith. So it's significant for what we, we find in verse 6 and how it gets picked up later in Scripture, but also it's a significant chapter when we look at verses 9 to 18. We will do that here in a few moments, but it describes God's covenant that he makes with Abraham. And we'll notice this is a very unique one in just a few moments. But this is a significant chapter in all of Scripture. But, even as significant as it is, this chapter also shows us that the good news doesn't always look or feel like good news. It doesn't always look or feel like good news. But it also shows us what kind of God we discover in the midst of that kind of an experience. When the gospel, the good news story, doesn't feel or look or sound like good news, what kind of God do we find in that experience? I got two points this morning. We find a God who is worth questioning, and we find a God who is worth believing. A God who's worth questioning and a God who's worth believing. So let's look first of all here at the God who is worth questioning. Why should you question God? First of all, notice in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. And then notice in verse 7. Again, God says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. What's very important to notice about this passage is that God makes the first move. God makes the first move. This is true at the very beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God. When it comes to the story of Abraham and the good news that that God preaches to him, it is God who comes to Abram in this far-off distant pagan land. And calls him into a relationship with himself. 
and says, I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. God makes the first move and he does it by reminding Abram of his promises. In verse 1, God says, I will be your protector. I will be your provider. In verse 7, God says, I will be faithful to you. I'll be faithful to what I've promised to you. And notice, God comes to him, not when things are going great, but when he's afraid, when he's unsure. He says, fear not, Abram. And we'll take a look at that again here in a a few moments. But what I want you to see at the very beginning, God is a God worth questioning because he moves toward us. He comes to us first. And he says things. And he makes promises that, if I could put it this way, he knows you're going to have a hard time embracing. It's almost as if God comes to you with his promises of reassurance, of his protection, his provision, and his faithfulness so that you have a place to question and even to complain and to say, how... How can this be true? Which is exactly what we see Abraham doing. Notice how he responds twice in verses 2 to 3 and verse 8 with a question. Verse 2, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. In verse 8 he says, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess this land? Abram comes with these two questions. And these are the two questions of his life. These are the two questions that Abraham has in light of God's promises. Because God's promise was that in you, Abram, you will be a blessing to the nations. But he has no children and he has no land of his own. And God says, I will give them to you. Now, I want you to think about this. Try to put yourself in Abram's situation. He acknowledges his doubts and his struggles to wait for a son. None of us like to wait. But waiting is part of the life of faith. Abram was 75 years old when God called him to leave his home and to come to Canaan. And it's not until he's 100 years old that Isaac is born to him. And chapter 15 falls right in the middle of Abraham's story. Think about this. God made a promise to Abraham And it's 25 years until that promise becomes a reality in Isaac. And he's 100 years old. You're not supposed to have children when you're 100. Can you imagine waiting 25 years to have a child? And also, notice, Abram is in the land 
a promise. And yet, when you look at verse 19, 20, and 21, who's in the land? Let's count it. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten other nations. And yet God says, I brought you out of the, uh, Chalde- from the land of Ur and from the Chaldeans to give you this land. Would it look like you were getting this land with ten nations possessing it already? See, Abram acknowledges his doubts and his struggles to wait for a son. He acknowledges things don't look promising in the land. In other words, virtually nothing in Abraham's life suggests that God's word is going to hold true. And so here's my question for you, especially if you're here this morning and you profess faith in Jesus. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt like, I know God says these things, but nothing in my life looks like or feels like what God says is actually true for me? I want you to think about this. This is a story that's very old and very far removed from us. But it's a story written for you. A story for you to relate to. To find your place in. And one of the ways we can do that is to ask, well, what would you do? How would you respond? Let me give you a couple examples, a couple possibilities. One is we could just flat out reject God and his promises and say, forget it. You're a farce. You don't come through. Doesn't matter what you say. Doesn't matter who you say you are. I'm done. Another one would be to come up with your own plan. Which, as we'll see in coming chapters and have seen somewhat already with Abram, uh, that is his propensity. He and Sarah both. God says these things. He makes his promises. He even gives them signs and permanent reminders and it still... They go about their own ways, strategizing to make up for what seems to them God not coming through. But I think there's a third option here, and and Abraham leads us, despite his weaknesses and failings, in a very important skill of faith. Learning to see that complaining to God is not the opposite of true faith. It's actually part of it. That learning to complain and question this God is actually part of true faith. Notice what Abram does here. As he questions, what do we see happen? We see Abram's faith growing into an assured faith. Look at verse 6. This is what verse 6 teaches us. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, it'd be easy to read these questions, this complaining, if you will, and think that Abram is demonstrating unbelief. But then what do you do with verse 6? It's the hinge of this whole chapter. That complaining and questioning are actually the path to an assured faith in Jesus Christ, to an assured faith in the God of the Bible. 
You see, what Abram is doing is he's taking God seriously. As the God who has the power to make these promises, and not just the power to make them, but also the love to keep them. It's as if Abram in this passage is like the father with the the boy who has the unclean spirit in Mark chapter 9 who cries out, I believe, help my unbelief. That is a beautiful and profound act of faith. I believe, help my unbelief. You see, I think it's much easier for you and me to despair in silence than to complain and question out loud. It's much easier to retreat and be quiet and become hard and numb towards God than to exercise faith and ask those questions to go to the God who makes these promises and has the love to keep them. One writer puts it like this, Abraham complains, this is actually on the front of your worship folder, out of his faith, not his unbelief. It takes spiritual energy to complain. Faith is living in imagination, in God's word, when the situation by sight seems impossible. Here's a God worth questioning. And what we also notice from Abraham, you notice he does two things in this passage, essentially. He questions and he believes. He's discovering a God who is worth questioning, but we also need to see that he's also a God worth believing. Now, why is he worth believing? Let's look at how God responds to Abram in this passage. First, just a very basic one. The fact that he responds at all. Look in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to Abram, came to him, and he says, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then look in verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, that is his, Abram's descendants, shall come back here to this land of promise in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now what's he saying here? How is God responding to Abram? Notice in verse 4 again, it's about an offspring, a son. God reminds and reassures Abraham that he will have a son from his own body, that he will come through on his promise. What I want you to see in this first response that God makes is that it is a promise for the near present. Do you notice that? He is saying that in your lifetime you will have a son. It's the near present. 
But then notice in those verses 8, 13 through 16, God is putting Abram and his offspring into a bigger story that God is working out. God is writing Abraham into this bigger narrative that doesn't just include him and his son, but all of his descendants. And even brings into view all of these nations that are included and are already living in this promised land. In other words, in verses 13 to 16, God is making Abraham a promise about the distant future. Now, let me try to make this as simple as I can for you. Why is God worth believing from this story? Because God comes to you with promises about your present and about your future in the gospel. That Jesus, the good news of the gospel, is not just good news for some far off and distant time, though that's true. There is good news for you here and now. Jesus, at the end of Matthew, he says, I will be with you to the end of the age. God's present and future promises are for you in Jesus, both, both right now. Imagine, though, for a second, remember these, this way that God responds to Abram. Imagine if you were the original readers of this. Abram's the first one to hear it, but imagine if you were the first ones to read this and hear it from Moses for the first time. Remember, this is written to God's people on the way to the promised land. After having been rescued from Egypt after 400 years of slavery, what would you have thought if you were in Egypt for that long? Do you think you could relate to Abram? Questioning these promises? Wondering, would he come through? And now you're on the way to the promised land and you hear these words of God to Abram about you. That God would bring you out of Egypt and into the promised land. What would you think? You'd think God's keeping his word. This was written about us. God said this to our father Abraham all those years ago, and he has come through. But also, it would show you that suffering and hardship are included in God's plan. Do you notice that? Verses 13 through 16 are full of trial and difficulty and hardship. Suffering and hardship are included in God's plan. They are not proof that God's forsaken us. Think about that. All of these people on their way to the promised land, hearing this, would, would know God has kept his word and he has kept it even through all that we have got, had to go through. And he is going to bring us into this land of blessing that he has promised all those years ago. He's a God worth, he's a God who responds, but he also gives permanent assurances. What does he say to Abram after he says in verse 4, this man, that is Eliezer of Damascus, won't be his heir, but you will have your very own son. He says, 
he brought him out. The narrator tells us that he brought Abram out and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you were able to number them. God said to him, so shall your offspring be. Think about this. Abram, he's a sojourner. He's wandering around and he's wondering how, how is God going to come through on his promises? Every night, he can now look up to the stars and remember God's promise to him. He says, look to the stars. But also, he, God makes a covenant with Abram. Look in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, literally, that phrase, made a covenant, means to cut a covenant. Which is important to understand because when you look in verses 9 through 11, after Abram asked, how am I supposed to know? How will I know if I will possess this land? God says to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. We don't really know why he didn't cut the birds in half. Probably it's because they're so small, but he laid them opposite. This is cutting a covenant. This was a very common practice in the ancient Near East, which is probably why we aren't given a whole lot of description about why Abram does this. This idea of making a covenant. God is communicating. He's giving Abram a permanent assurance. And so what happens? After Abram places all these animals and protects them from the birds of prey, in verse 12, the sun was going down and a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Every single commentator I looked at on this passage says that the imagery here of the darkness is a symbol of the darkness and the trial that God's people experience in Egypt. It's a foretelling of what is going to happen and what is described in verses 13 to 16. And it's in the midst of that, what do we see happen? A smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between these pieces that are cut in half and laid opposite each other. Now think for a moment. You may not pick this up, but the flaming, the fire pot, the smoking fire pot and the flaming torch, what are those pictures of? Those are pictures of God's presence. And particularly in the book of Exodus, God reveals his presence with his people as he brings them out of Egypt as what? A pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Here, what we're seeing is God, in these symbols, is passing between these pieces, cut in half. And in the ancient Near East, that's how you make a covenant. You cut the pieces, put them opposite And then you walk between them. And by doing that, what you're saying is, may it be to me if I don't keep my covenant with you. 
What God is saying here to Abraham and to you and me, if I don't keep my covenant, may it be to me. May I become like these animals, rent asunder, if I fail to keep my word. And the most astounding part of the story here is only one part of the covenant, one party passes between these pieces, and it's God. In every other ancient covenant, both parties pass between the pieces. But do you notice Abraham doesn't? What is God doing and telling us? What God is saying is, Abram, I am the one who must keep this covenant. I will keep both sides of this covenant. It's not up to you. It's up to me. And may it be to me if I fail to do so. And how do we see him do that? Well, here we have this permanent assurance that he gives him. But notice in verse 1, what does God say? He says, Abram, I am your shield. He gets personally involved. Think about this for a moment. In context here, when he comes to Abram, he says, fear not. It comes right after Abram has beat four kings who beat five kings. Now, if you're Abram, you're on your own. In all likelihood, Abraham's terrified, despite his defeat of them, that they will take revenge. And God says, fear not, Abram. I am your shield. I am your protector. What is a shield? Think about a shield is a military tool that takes the blows, whether it be from arrows or spears or other kinds of military uh, weaponry. The shield takes the blows. It stands in the gap. It protects you. God is described as a shield numerous times in the Bible, especially in the Psalms. And in Psalm 3, verse 3, it says, You, O Lord, are a shield about me, around me. But what I want you to see is that it's more than an image about God. I want you to see that this is literally true of God. In the gospel, it is what God in Christ does for his people. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but the cross of Jesus is God being our shield. The cross of Jesus is God himself taking the blows that you and I deserve. It's God being a shield around you. Standing in the gap, fighting your battles that you cannot fight, that you cannot win. And what's most interesting, on the cross, God himself suffers the same fate as the animals in the covenant he makes in Genesis 15. But do you remember what I said? Why does someone suffer the fate of those animals? It's because they broke the covenant. So does the cross mean that God broke his covenant? No. The cross is God suffering the fate of our failure to keep covenant, to keep our side of the relationship. This is a picture of free grace in this story. 
So what? Here's what I want you to think about in light of this story. We find here a God who is worth questioning, a God who is worth believing. What does that mean for you and me? It means that there is an entirely different way to live your life. You and I don't have to live lives of getting, of grasping, of pining after the things that either God promises, good though they are, or the things that we think we have to have. It means that there is a life of faith, of receiving. Instead of a life of getting, there is a different way to live. And it's called a life of receiving. Now, that may sound passive, and I assure you it's not. There's nothing about this story, if you're looking and getting inside of it with Abraham, that is sort of passive and throwing up your hands. Believing God is a supernatural work. It's a strength and an energy that you and I cannot muster up. God must give it to us. Which is why we gather every single week to be reminded that He is a God who loves to give you what He requires. That's the good news of the gospel. Because if we're honest, it's not Abraham's faith and believing that makes him so great or the things that he does that makes him so great. What makes Abraham great? And if I could put it this way, what makes any of us great is realizing that the only way forward is to believe God's promises, to believe that he is your shield wherever that leads The good news of the gospel, God's assurances, they are his permanent assurances to you and to me who struggle with faith. Whether it be in the present or whether it be about the future. And yet, God says to you, and he says to me, fear not, I am your shield. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask that as your word tells us that there's good news in this story and it addresses us as real people uh, in real relationship with you taking you seriously and yet struggling to find peace and rest and hope and confidence and assurance in the midst of it and so Father we ask that you would help us to see that in Jesus you are a God who is worth complaining to and questioning and you are also a God who is worth believing because you, you make the first move. You respond. You give us assurances. Not only that, you give us your own son at infinite cost to yourself. Father, please help us to find our refuge in him to know him as our shield around us. And we ask that that would give us songs of joy, that it would set our hearts on fire with praise and wonder and delight and hope. Whatever we see in our lives this morning, whatever we've been through in the week past, whatever we anticipate in the week ahead, help us to delight in Jesus and your commitment 
to us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.